Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tonight for our text. We are in the second week uh, of our series that we're calling Tools. And last week we kind of set the context of it by um, explaining that Jesus, the carpenter, is doing a work and that we are the substance of what he is working on. And what we heard last week as we looked at Revelation chapter 5 is that he is worthy of our cooperation. He is worthy that we would trust him to allow him to do his work within our life. And in order for him to do his work within our life, it requires trust on our behalf because though he is competent to do the work and he always finishes what he began, he does not give us that much information. He doesn't tell us what he's doing, when he's going to finish, how he's going to bring it to pass, or you know what the process is going to be along the way. All of that is up to him and our place is to trust him. What he does promise to us that he's going to be with us that he's going to finish what he started, that he doesn't fail in his purpose, and that he's given us a guide. And that part of what we enjoy and the privilege that we have is that we get to see what he uses in our lives. So as we search the scriptures, what we have, in a sense, is a picture of God's toolbox. He shows us the things that he uses to shape us, to lead us, to make us, and to prepare us for where we're going. And so we're going to do this for just a few weeks, even though we probably could do this for very uh, many weeks. But we're going to look at some of the more, uh, the most powerful, and yet maybe some of the least understood or least recognized tools that God uses in our life. So our text this week, as we look at this uh, tool of God that we call weekends, or the weak things in our lives, the weekends of our life. The message tonight is living in or living for the weekends, the way that God uses our weakness as a tool to shape us, lead us, and accomplish his purposes. So if you would, look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for our text. It says in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is the author, and he says, it is not expedient the word is profitable I, I did a little translation for you at least in verse one because it's just the king's english is a little tedious here but he says essentially it is not profitable for me now to boast but i will come to visions and revelations from the lord and we'll talk about the context of why he's saying this in just a moment but he's going to talk about an experience that he had at some point where God showed him something remarkable. And so he says in verse 2, he says, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether it was in the body, I can't tell, or whether it was out of the body, I can't tell. God does know. But such a one was caught up to the third heaven. So he had an experience 14 years in his past. He doesn't know if it was physical or whether it was purely spiritual, but it was as real to him either way, as whether, whether it had been uh, him in the flesh, that he was caught up into the third heaven, the very place where God resides. He says, I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, but God knows how that he was caught up into paradise and he heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. I don't, I don't believe that what he's saying there is that it is against the law. I think what he was saying is that there's no way to do it justice. There are no words in any human language that can rightly describe the things that I saw or the things that I heard. And then he says in verse 5, of such a one will I glory or will I boast of, yet of myself I will not glory. So it, what he's saying here is that that this was so far from anything that, that feels like it was even me. It was so much the Lord that was doing something that I couldn't even understand that I feel like I was a spectator watching this happen to me. He says, I'll, I'll boast of that guy, but of myself, I don't want to boast. Except, he says, and here's it is in verse, the end of verse 5, he says, except in my infirmities. The word infirmities means my weaknesses, 
the places where I don't measure up, the places where I'm insufficient, the places where I find that I can't, that I lack the ability. That's where I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast about the things that I'm weak in. And here's what he says. For though I would desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be or that he hears of me. He, in other words, is being very careful in what he's doing right now. He's about to boast of his credentials. And we'll see why he's going to do this in just a moment. But he wants to boast about his weaknesses and not his accomplishments. And the reason for that is because he is very, 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 very concerned that if he boasts of his accomplishments, that he might give the impression in some way that he is greater than what he really is, that you might think or that someone might think that he is greater or more than what he actually is. Now, someone in here who has a social media account needs to read that verse again. That Paul was desperately afraid of portraying himself in a way that made someone else think that he was better than he really was. I don't know that there's a, a better definition of an Instagram post of making, portraying myself as maybe something greater than what I really am. But Paul said, I am so afraid of what that will do to you that I don't want to do that. I'm not going to tell you one thing that I have accomplished. Rather, I'm going to boast about the areas that I'm weak. Now, we think, well, that doesn't even make sense. But now we're going to understand why. He says in verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure, lifted up to think more highly of myself than I should, or let others think more highly of myself, He says, through the abundance of the revelations, the things that God taught me, the things that God showed me, the things that God allowed me to give to others, he said, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, an affliction in my tangible, expressed presence in my body, an affliction. He calls it the messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. And he says, for this thing, or concerning this thing, I besought the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, his answer, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. About, I would say, four, five, six months ago, I was sitting with my kids in our kitchen, and we were, uh, my older kids, and we were reading an article about uh, 10 things that all millionaires have in common. And we were intrigued by uh, this list, and we wanted to, of course, assess our own personalities and, and strengths against those that have made it in this world, so to speak. And so we were reading this article together, and as we were working our way through the list, we came to number five. Number five on, on the list of, of things that all millionaires have in common, or probably most, you know, because there's no such thing as all. Number five is that it said that all millionaires are not jacks of all trades. And, and, and then it explained why. And it said that because most people that are jacks of all trades, they're kind of good at everything, they're spread so thin that they can't give themselves wholly to one thing enough to be able to really be successful and really thrive. And when I read that, I realized my whole problem in life is that this is, this is me to the T, that I will never get off the ground. There will never be liftoff. There will never be enough thrust because that is my personality. 
Now, it didn't, I wasn't always that way. It kind of just happened out of necessity. We were married young. We had no jobs. We have very little education. We didn't have any like special things going for us. And our starting point was very low. And so it was out of necessity that I would become a jack of all trades. If my car broke, if I didn't fix it, I didn't drive it because I couldn't pay someone else to do it. If something went wrong around the house, it fell on me. If something broke that the kids needed for school, a computer or something, I had to figure it out. And so there was kind of like this this thing. So over time, it went from being necessity to actually being almost a hobby or maybe even therapy to where where now I actually enjoy it. There's something that happens when something, I, I actually like it. I can check out of what, you know, what's on me all the rest of the time and I can do something. I can fix something. And I enjoy doing it. Now, this year, for whatever reason, has kind of been the year of the carburetor. I don't know why, but it seems like all year long I've been fixing carburetors in various different things, machines, tools, you know, something is going on with carburetors. There's a demon in carburetors. (laughs) But I'm fascinated. I don't understand how they work, but I'm fascinated by them. Just the engineering of how there's this perfect mixture of fuel and air and how it's delivered at just the right proportion and and put in the engine, the cylinders and the whole thing. And it, it just fascinates me to realize the engineering of how it works. And yet that's only one component. It's one little piece of what makes this whole thing come to life. And the engineering blows my mind because you have this fuel delivery system, but that works in tandem with an electrical system. And that fits into something that's functional and usable and reliable and that is supposed to, at least, work every time you turn the key or press the button. And I'm amazed at at the engineering of how these systems can all work together. But then I think about the human machine. I think about what we are. And and I think about the, the complexity and the amazingness that goes into the engineering of what we are. I mean, just think about just our body, just the physical. There's probably more than a dozen systems that are more complex than a carburetor that are self-renewing and that sustain themselves by the work of God and that keep us going. Think about our circulatory system or think about, you know, uh, just the motor skills that we have and all of that. That's just in our body, our digestive system, you know, the nervous system, all those things that just are physical. That's it. But then those things somehow work in tandem with the mind. This invisible, intangible thing that we can't describe, we can't define, we can't draw a picture of it, but yet it's as complex as anything that's physical, and yet it works in tandem, not just our body, not just our mind, but once we know Christ, then we're spiritually made alive. And the part of us that connects to God is now regenerated and resurrected And now we give our lives to him and everything that we are in our physical and also in our mental is now in tandem with the spiritual of God. And he's now working in all of those things and in tandem with our personality, the unique individuality of what we are, he's adjusting all of that and leading us towards a purpose, a call a work, something that he has designed, something that he has made for us to do. And in the process of orchestrating all of that, now, if there was one human being that that was happening with, that would be amazing. But he's doing it with the entirety of his kingdom, of his body. And at the same time, he's still reaching out to those that don't know him yet, trying to bring them in because his capacity is that he can do this on an unimaginable, eternal, infinite scale. What an amazing thing. And yet in the process of all of this, he has this tool. He has this thing that he uses in order to accomplish the synchronization of all of that and in bringing us into preparation for the purpose that he has for us. It's this thing, this tool called weakness, infirmities, lackings. And and somehow God uses that in this section of scripture that we're looking at. We're looking at this amazing, powerful tool. Now, the context of the, the words that Paul is using here is that Paul is defending 
his credentials and his callings. Now, he was probably the very first missionary, the first one to ever really go on a mission outside of the territory that he was familiar with would be the Apostle Paul. He was called by God, anointed by God, and he went out and he began preaching, he began evangelizing, he began church planting, and things were happening all up around him. Now, because of the fruit and the success in his life, there were other people that said, hey, we can do that too. And some of those people did it out of a sense of calling and a sense of God's leading. But there were others that did it out of a sense of enterprise. There were some that said, hey, this is something that we could make profitable. This is something that we could use to expand our influence and that we could make a name for ourselves in it. And so let's do what he's doing, not for the right reasons, but we'll do it for selfish reasons. And they went out into the mission field as well. Now, because there was a spirit of competition, what they would do is not only give their message, but they would discredit Paul's character, Paul's message, and Paul's influence in order to draw them to themselves. And because these false leaders had made their way into Corinth, where Paul had planted and grown a church into a healthy, thriving state, and some of the people there had bought into the message of these enterprising missionaries, Paul in this section of Corinthians is defending his authority and defending his message. And thus he says in chapter 10, verse eight, which really is kind of the starting point of this contextual thing. He says, for though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord has given us for edification and not for your destruction, I will not be ashamed. He's saying, listen, I feel this temptation to again, let you know the things that God has done with me so that you would understand the authority that's been given to me by God. And then he explains why in chapter 11, verse 2. He says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means, just like the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. Paul is saying, listen, the reason why I'm talking like this is because there is a message out there that is contrary yet similar to the message that I'm preaching, and I'm afraid that you're going to believe it. Now, He waffles a bit from here, and he's tempted to boast, but he feels refrained. He doesn't want to quite do it. And so he says in chapter 11, verse 18, he says, fine, you need me to boast? I love Paul. He dialogues with himself in the middle of a letter. I do that to myself when I'm walking, but he does it when he's writing. He goes back and forth. Should I boast? Should I not boast? He says in verse 18, he says, seeing that many glory after the flesh, many boast according to what they've done in the flesh, he says, fine. I will glory also. He says, fine, if you need me to validate my authority, then I'm going to boast. I'm going to tell you where my credentials come from. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Because where most people would pull out their resume and their badges and their certificates and the photos of them preaching in front of thousands, Paul doesn't do that at all. Instead, what he does He tells us in verse 24 of the same chapter, these are the credentials, so to speak, that Paul lists before them. Notice in verse 24. He says, from the Jews, five times I received the 40 stripes minus one. That means he was whipped 39 times, five times. Remember what Jesus went through when he was chastised at the hand of Pilate and the Romans? Paul went through that five times. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Lost at sea for a night. Can you imagine that? I've been lost in the woods and I feel like crap for my mommy. (laughs) He was lost at sea and couldn't see land. Can you imagine what that's like? He says, in journeyings often. In danger in water. In danger of robbers. In danger by my own countrymen. In danger by the heathen. That's the Gentiles. In danger in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in danger in the sea, in danger among false brethren. In weariness, that's tired. 
and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings, in cold and in nakedness. Uh, uh, Watchings means not sleeping at night, not being able to sleep for, for the sake of protecting his own life. And then he said, beside those things that are without, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who is weak and I'm not weak, who's offended and I burn not, he says in verse 30, if I must needs boast, if I have to boast, then I will boast of the things which concern my affirmities. The validation of my authority in my ministry is not in my accomplishments, but rather it's in my afflictions. That's what the Apostle Paul would say to the church that was questioning the validity of his ministry. And in the process of explaining this, he lets them in on something that's going on in his life that they didn't know about. See, they just saw Paul the preacher. Because he didn't come to them and say, you guys have no idea what I've been through and and how hard this has been for me to get here. And Do you realize what it was like to walk from Thessalonica down to here and how tired and hungry we have no money? He didn't do that. He came there and he said, I purposed in my heart that when I was among you, I would know nothing, preach nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what he does now is he lifts the veil and he lets them see a side of his experience that they knew nothing of before the side of his afflictions, he lets them know the price that he was paying in secret in order to be what he was to them in public. He says, in order for me to be effective among you, this is what I must go through. This is the seat of my authority. And then you ask the question and you say, why? Why is it that Paul put so much stock in his own weaknesses and in his sufferings and in his trials and that he holds those things as the seat of his authority. Why would he do that? And he gives the answer in the text that we read in chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. He says, I want to tell you about the visions and the revelations that I've received from the Lord. God has taught me much, and so much so that there was one point 14 years ago where I saw what no man has ever seen. I don't know if I was in the body or out. I don't know if I was dead or alive. All I know is that the things I saw were so real to me that they were almost tangible. They were tangible. He said it was amazing. It's unspeakable. I can't even tell you the things that I heard. He says in verse 6 to them that if I begin to even try to tell you the things that I've accomplished, you'd be misled into thinking that I'm something more. And so in verse 7, he says, here's the secret sauce. Here's the reason why I have been so effective in my life. Here is the tool that God has used to do more with my life than anything that could ever be done in my own strength. The secret sauce is in verse 7 of chapter 12. He says that lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. There was a source of constant agitation. Have you ever had a thorn stuck under your skin? We live in the land of wild rose. If you have not, then that just means that you don't go outside in Dutchess County. You know, yes, I have had that thorn that gets in and breaks off. And it's just that thing that's there and you feel it every time you move. And Paul says, I was given a thorn. There was a thorn. There was something, some constant agitation And he doesn't tell us exactly what it is. He summarizes it in verse 10. (laughs) Notice what he says. He says, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I think that the thorn was constantly changing. That's why he doesn't tell us what it is, because it could be so many different things. But he tells us that it was ordained of God, so God allowed it, but that Satan did it. Amazing kind of the way those two things work together there. And he calls it a messenger of Satan. He says, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. Do you know what the word messenger translates out to be? It's the word angel. The word angel and the word messenger are interchangeable. And so what he's basically saying is that I had a guardian angel from hell. And that's what it was. So that means that when God was assigning guardian angels, he was like, ah, Gabriel, no, Michael, no, uh, Satan, yes, you, you're on Paul. 
<laughs> That's what you get. And he was given a guardian angel that was of Satan. He says, and to buffet me, why? Lest I should be exalted above measure. So here's what's going on in Paul's life, just as a summary. He's having visions and revelations of God. He's being used in mighty and powerful ways. He's bearing much fruit for Jesus. But at the same time, all of that's happening. He's suffering in secret. And no one else knows the things that are going on. And so he responds to that. Now, how many of us in here, if we're going through something that's difficult or pain, what do we do as Christians? What do we do? We ask God to take it away, right? (laughs) We pray that he would fix it. And that's exactly what Paul does. Notice in verse 8. He says, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it would depart from me. Now, a few weeks ago, I, I shared with you a message from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Remember? Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, if there's anything going on in your life that's troubling you, then what you do with that is that you take it to God in prayer with thanksgiving and ask him to help. That's what we do with these things. And that's exactly what Paul did. He took his own advice and he asked God to help him. He did that three times. That means on three separate occasions when he was suffering this affliction, when he was feeling his own weakness... He brought it to God and he said, God, please take this away from me. And it took until the third time, and maybe somebody here needs to hear that tonight because maybe you're going through something and maybe you asked once and you thought, well, God didn't do it. This must not be real. He prayed the third time. How many times did Elijah pray when he knew God was going to do something? He prayed seven times before he saw the first sign of an answer. Listen, if God hasn't come through yet, you keep asking. And after the third time... Paul prays, now the answer comes. Not the removal of the affliction, but the answer comes. He prays and he says, God, please end this suffering. Please get me out of this situation. I'm tired of struggling with this. Whatever it was at that that time. God, get the Judaizers and kill them. Lord, please, if you would, get the guy, that, that other guy in the office, get him out. Please. Lord, raise these teenagers and help them move on. Get them out of my life. Lord, save my spouse or take them home. Please get this out of my life. Help me. I I need to be out from under the weight of this affliction. God, remove this, this mental cloud. Remove this depression. God, remove this tendency to anxiety or fear. God, remove from me this struggle with this temptation and this sin that I just can't seem to get past. God, I'm tired of struggling with this. Remove this from my life. It's constantly there. I can't put it down. God, remove from me this obsessive nature that's in me that thoughts keep rolling over and over and over in my head and I can't get them out and no matter how much I try to think on things that are pure and right and holy and good and just no matter what they just come back God please would you take this from me Lord this sickness this ailment this issue that I can't define what it is and it's a moving thorn that one day it manifests in a headache and the next day I'm tired and the next day I can't walk and the next day my knees don't work and I don't know what it is but I know it's something God would you please take it away And after the third time of pleading with God, God comes now and he gives him an answer. And the answer that God gives to him in verse 9, it says that he said unto me. Here's the answer. Listen, it's so profound. It's the whole message that I have for you tonight to hear. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. That's the answer. The rest is an explanation. The answer to all of Paul's pleading for God to take away the infirmity, to take away the weakness, is God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, what is grace? Grace, very simply, is God saying that what I have, what I am, And what I will freely supply because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. The power that I can give into your life in spite of where you lack 
That is my grace. And my grace that has been given to you, listen, this is important, it's profound, it's huge. He says, my grace is sufficient. Now, when I first read that, I thought that God was being the cold dad that was saying, what you have is good enough. What you have, be thankful for what you've got. Don't look at what you don't have, look at what you do. No, 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 that's not the idea behind sufficient. The idea behind sufficient is not it's enough, but it supplements what lacks. In other words, if God's grace has been bestowed upon your life, your cup is full. But there's two different substances inside that cup. The substance that is red, we'll call it, well, let's call that part blue, is the part that is you. Whatever you bring in a particular area of your life, that's the blue part. When God says that my grace is sufficient, what he's saying is that what I supply is what fills the rest of the space. It isn't just that, well, deal with what you've got, it's enough. He's saying, no, my grace fills it up. And here's the explanation that God adds to it. He says, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in your weakness. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. That means his strength is his ability that fills up what's lacking because of my weakness. And so what God is saying to Paul, what God is saying to us concerning the infirmities, concerning the thorn, concerning the difficulties that we face in this present age, he is saying that your weakness, your lack, the areas where you are not enough, that that is the very place where God's supply and God's strength is going to be manifested. See, here's, here's what you've got to understand about grace. Is that grace is not just God tolerating my weaknesses. See, that's what we think. We think, okay, well, God is being gracious to me. And so that means that he is being kind to me in spite of the fact that I'm weak. He's just tolerating my weakness. No, he doesn't just tolerate my weakness, but his grace is the supply of his power to make up what I lack. Meaning that he gives me what I need where I don't have enough. The cup is always full, but the proportions vary. I fill up this much, he fills up this much. If I fill up this much, then he only fills up this much. And essentially what God is saying to Paul What God is saying to us, he's saying, you feel infirmity, you feel your weakness, you feel your mortality, you feel your frailty, but because of my grace, you're going to get through. You're going to get past this. You're going to win. You're going to survive. And that's going to happen whether you feel it or not, because my grace is going to make up where you are lacking. That's the answer that God gave Paul. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Now, Paul at this point, has three choices. It's the same three choices that every one of us have when God whispers, my grace is sufficient for you. The first choice that Paul has at this point, which many, many people take this path, is that they walk away from God. Say, you're not going to heal. You're not going to fix. You're not going to remove. You're not going to change the culture and the dynamics of my home life. You're not going to fix what's going on in my mental thing. You're not answering my prayer. You're not showing the power. You're not going to do it. Well, then I'm not going to follow you. You must not be real. And so what happens is people turn their back on God. Now, now, listen, it doesn't happen outrightly. People don't just go, well, some do. Go, I'm done with this. But, But for most, the way it manifests is that there's just kind of a subtle shifting of the priorities. It isn't that, okay, you're not going to do this. I'm going to go cook meth. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't really work like that. But what I will do is, you know, before where I wouldn't miss a service because of something that I might hear from God in his word, now maybe that's not so important to me anymore. Maybe I'll sit more towards the back and maybe I'll assess whether or not it's worth it to go today. I, I don't really care as much as I used to. Or where God and his plan for my life used to consume me. And God, I want to be who you made me to be and I want to do what you made me for. Now, maybe I I allow some things into my life 
my priorities just shift a little bit. I, I'm going to give myself to a few other things, and God, I'm here if you need me. It's, it's kind of like that. Like, it's not that important to me anymore. You didn't do exactly what I thought you were going to do, and so I'm not going to be what maybe I thought I would be or what you would want me to be. Just turn away. The second thing, and I think this is probably the most common thing that people do when, when, when this happens in their life, is that they don't necessarily check out. They don't even maybe turn. They don't shift even their priorities. But what they do is they get stuck. They stop. They, 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 they hear God say, I'm not going to address this right now. I'm not going to take that weakness out of your life right now. I'm not going to change the circumstances right now. My grace is sufficient for you. And so what they do is they go, oh, well, this obstacle that's in front of me is so great that I can't possibly do anything until it's removed. And so I'm just going to stand here and wait for God to remove it. He must not want me to move forward. And so I'm just going to stand. I'm here. And so I'm just going to keep praying. I, I prayed three times. I'll pray five times. I'll pray 10 times. I'll pray 100 times. I'll have people pray for me. I'll try a different combination of prayer words. I will unlock the secret of God's removing of this mountain. I will declare it. I will speak it. I will profess it. I will claim it in every way that I know how. I will fast. I will ask. I will shout. I will scream. I will cry. I will do everything in my power to see this mountain moved. God says, I'm not moving that mountain right now. I'm stuck. See, what he asks of us it is not to stop until the mountain is removed. He asks us to move forward in his grace in spite of the fact that the mountain is there. See, when were the, when were the lepers cleansed? It happened when they went to the priest to show themselves. They came to Jesus and they said, would you cleanse us? And he said, go show yourselves to the priest and offer the, te- the, 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 the offering that Moses said as a sacrifice. And they said, all right. And they started walking. And as they were going, they realized they were cleansed. They were cleansed when they kept moving forward, even though they still had the affliction. So people say, I'll praise him when I feel like praising. I'll praise him when the depression lifts. No, it doesn't work like that. You praise him because he's worthy of praise, not because you feel like it or you don't feel like it. I'll love when I feel like loving. I'll love him or I'll love her when they show me that that I can safely trust them with some of my love. No, no, God doesn't say that. He doesn't say love them when they deserve it or when they feel like it. He says, love them now with the power that I'm going to give you to love them. You know, I'll serve the Lord. I'll serve the Lord when he gives me a little bit of margin in my schedule and maybe a little bit of financial cushion to be able to make room for that. No, it doesn't work like that. Because maybe that mountain is there and he's calling you to move forward in spite of it. I'll share my faith when I feel the confidence that I'll have the answers that are given to me in opposition to what I'm presenting. It doesn't work like that. You don't wait for the condition to change. If God says move, you move. That's what you do. And then, you know, so, so here's what happens is that we misinterpret the problem that we have as an obstacle and not an enablement. And that's what God was saying to Paul in this. Listen, you have a thorn and you think that this thorn is an obstacle that's keeping you from serving me fully or from bearing fruit for me or for living the life that I've called you to live. It's not an obstacle. It's actually an enablement because the very thing that you are considering your weakness and why you can't is the place where I'm going to come in and cause you to thrive and to prosper. That's what I'm going to do. You're misinterpreting. You know what? I think that there's a lot of Christians that have spiritual autoimmunity. Do you know what autoimmunity is? It, it's, it's, a, it's a condition where your body attacks itself because it thinks organs are foreign invaders. That's autoimmunity. So your body starts attacking your thyroid or your liver, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden your immune system is trying to kill you. The thing that's made to protect you is trying to kill you. And I think there's a lot of Christians that have spiritual autoimmunity because what happens is that God has put something in your life to actually be the servant to bring you where you need to go. And we spend all of our time fighting against the thing that God put in us to try to help us. And in the process, we just get stuck. We sit 
or stuck. I can't until. I can't until. The third choice, turn away, get stuck. The third thing is that we can do what Paul did. What did Paul do? Notice what he says in verse, the second half of the verse, verse 9. He says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul embraces what God gave to him and he glories or boasts in his weaknesses and he actually makes the declaration. Listen to how radical this is. He says, the thing that I value most in my life is the weakness that God has put in me because I realize that the less I bring to the table in any given area of my life, the more he has to fill and complete what it is and thus the more of him that I have. And so I value it. And so what did Paul do? Paul learned to translate truth. Because what did he say? He said that there was a messenger from Satan that was constantly yelling at him. And do you know what the messenger of Satan was saying? He was going, you're weak, Paul, and you can't do it. And Paul heard that, and he translated it. And, and what he heard was not that he was weak, but that God is strong. Okay. The, the, the messenger said, you can't do it, Paul. You can't. Paul heard, but he can. The messenger said, you're not enough. Paul heard, but he is. You're a failure, and you failed again. You blew it. He heard, but he didn't, and he isn't, and he won't. The messenger said, you don't have enough to be able to keep giving and giving and giving. And what he heard is that, yeah, but he does, and he's an inexhaustible supply within my life. What God's grace gives to us is the enablement to move forward even if our mountain isn't moved yet. That's the power of God's grace. There was a season after uh, Sarah, my middle child, was born. I have three older and then a gap and then two younger. You guys can figure out how that, ha- you know, what, what, what went on there and the whole, the whole thing. But, but there was that season after Sarah was born, we had three young kids and our life was just crazy. It was, you guys know, I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you how it is. It wasn't worse for us than it is for you. But it was that season where you're still trying to figure out who you are, and yet you're trying to be a parent and lead a life. It's crazy. And Sarah was, was just born. And, and Georgia says that there was a season right after Sarah was born that she went through this, this, this time that she had with the Lord where she, she actually experienced pleasure when things went wrong that she actually looked forward to it sometimes. And she, she told me this. This was just in the last seven days that we had this conversation. She said that I would come home and I would point out what she didn't do, you know, and, and that she would actually get happy. She said that I, my heart would smile inside when that would happen because I saw it in this way as an opportunity to experience God's grace in the midst of my weakness. And she said there was any time it would happen, if, 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 if our parents would give us grief about the way that we were raising our kids, or if there was some necessity, if something would come up, she said it was literally like it was a pleasure to me, like I would almost get high on it. Now, I didn't hear any of the rest of that because I was like, wait, you were upset about the things that I said to you? <laughs> you know? she, didn't, she never said it to me, like, you never say, you know, she just ate it essentially and you know I never knew that that was even going on you know she she learned how to deal with it she just started putting x-lax in my food and eventually I stopped doing that (laughs) I, I grew up but listen she was doing what Paul did notice what Paul says he says in verse 10 he says therefore listen I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I take pleasure when I wake up in the morning and I don't have energy. I wake up and I have no vision for what I'm supposed to do with my day, where I'm going with my life. That is a source of pleasure to me. When I feel like I am insufficiently gifted for the task at hand, or I don't have the resources, the faculties, or the ability to do it, I take pleasure in that. When I'm uninspired 
For the things that I have to do in my life, I take pleasure in that. When I have to be something that I don't know how to be, if I have to be a dad, but I don't know how, if I have to be a husband or a wife, but I don't know how to do that, if, if, if the world is placing demands upon me and I don't feel like I have enough to do it, I take pleasure in that. When I have nothing left, I keep on. That's infirmities. He says, I take pleasure in reproaches. You know what reproaches are? Reproaches are being judged for the way I am. When people come and they judge me, they don't understand me, they don't know me, they don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. They're completely looking at me based upon my actions and not my intentions, and they're just making my life miserable. He says, I take pleasure in it. In necessities, when I don't have enough money, when I don't have enough time, when I have nothing left to give, he says, I take pleasure in it. In persecutions, when the guy who's five years my junior keeps sabotaging me in the office... And, he's, and, and it's just a source of constant persecution. Or the other way around, the guy who's five years my senior and he keeps clipping my wings and slandering my character and keeping me in this cage and I can't go anywhere. He says, when that happens, I take pleasure in it. In distresses. That means when things are piling up, when I'm behind on sleep, when I'm sick. He says, in those times, I take pleasure in this. You say, why in the world does it have to work like this? Why is it that God's strength has to be magnified in my weakness? That's the question that we ask the engineer, isn't it? Here's why. Because while Paul was distracted with his weakness and his infirmities and the problems that he was facing in his life, he was writing two-thirds of the New Testament. He was planting churches all over the known world. He was seeing miraculous things happen everywhere he went. The people were being healed. God was answering prayer. Fruit was coming out of his life in a way that is unspeakable and probably has never been matched in the history of the church. He laid the foundation for what is New Testament Christianity and the things that God was doing in his life. And there was a danger that God saw that if Paul could see the level of the fruit that he was bearing that it would lift up his ego to a point where he would become unusable and the flow of fruit from his life would stop immediately. And God said, I am going to use this weakness to blind you from seeing what's going on in the areas that you can't see. This is God's way. I think of John Bunyan, the Puritan pastor in the 1600s who was locked away for his faith for 11 years for nothing more than preaching the gospel and after 10 years he had an idea a vision a dream and he put pen to page and he began to write about a christian man and what it's like to walk through the world never knowing if what he was writing would ever see the light of day or ever become anything, and distracted by the darkness of a prison cell, he wrote a work called The Pilgrim's Progress that became the most widely read, widely used, and probably the second most appreciated book that's ever been written in the history of mankind while he was distracted in a prison sentence. I think of the testimonies that we hear about a man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon was so effective in his preaching but his wife would write and say that he suffered with depression to such a state that it took me half the week to get him out of bed after he would preach on a Sunday God using the affliction of his mental anguish to hide him from the fruit that he was bearing lest he should become unusable because he's lifted up in pride And God would say to you young mother who sits at home on a pile of laundry and looking at kids with messy faces and wondering what in the world is the purpose that my life is serving here i feel like i'm dying in this environment but in the midst of feeling that weakness of that affliction you have no idea what you're doing in raising up the next generation and what god is sowing into a life that has someone who loves them the way you're loving them and so on and so forth it goes as god uses it There's some of you here tonight that because of a mountain that you're facing that you've asked God to lift and that he hasn't lifted silently in your heart, maybe in subtle ways that have maybe become even not so subtle, you've turned away and you said, okay, God, well, if you're not going to change this in my life, then you're not worthy of me following. 
be serving you any longer. The word that God has for you tonight is, listen, it isn't when I lift this that you'll bear fruit. It's in this that my strength will be manifested. There's some of you here tonight and you're just stuck. You haven't moved. Something happened, something changed, a conflict arose. Maybe your kids turned left when you thought they would go right or go straight. And you're stuck. You're in that place. You're like the paralytic who says, I can't, there's no one to help me get into the water. But Jesus says, get up. You're sitting when you could be beaming. You know what beaming is? Beaming is believe, embrace, and move. Believe, embrace, and move. Beam. Believe that God is using what you're going through. Embrace the situation that you're in and go. Don't stop where you are. And there's some of us here that need to learn how to translate truth. Because we're never enough. And we're never going to be enough. But his grace is sufficient. And the call of God upon our lives tonight is that we would embrace whatever it is that he has allowed in his wisdom as he engineers our body, our mind, our spirit, and our personality and shapes us even as he hides us from the effectiveness of our own lives for the sake of bringing him glory. And in silent, a crown is being fashioned in the secret place that one day we will see and understand. But for now, he says, go. Father, I just thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, that you would use this in our lives, that we would learn how to embrace the difficult things, that we would allow you to finish what you've begun, that we wouldn't turn aside, turn away, or be doubtful. So help us, Lord, tonight. We we ask that you would lift us, that you would help us, that you would speak to us, that you would renew us and refill us, that you would adjust our perspective. And you'd help us to live full on and completely for you. So I pray for any here tonight, Lord, that need this word. I ask that you would speak it deep. You'd drive it home. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We declare that you're worthy. Teach us, Lord, what it means to take pleasure in the things that we have been trained to hate. We know that your intentions are good. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time. May you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.